Programming Throwdown, episode 63, Spring. Take it away, Patrick. I wanted to talk about a sort of weird, tangent, interesting phenomenon, and that is very small quadcopters with cameras on them. So growing up as a child, the, you know, very tiny spy airplane, spy helicopter, spy robot thing was always like a fascinating um, thought for, uh, yeah. for, I guess, for a young child. And I mean, in general, now, they had, remember Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when the kids got oh, really small yeah. and then they were kind of like, you know, flies, literally flies on the wall size. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so now the technology for miniature electronics is and cheap electronics is getting so good that it's sort of culminated in this thing that's just, I, I guess some sort of phenomenon or whatever, but it's called the tiny whoop. So the tiny whoop is a small ducted fan quadcopter. So the each of the, so a quadcopter has four propellers on motors uh, arranged in sort of a square around the center or an X, but around the center where the electronics and battery go. And the ducted part is means there's like a, sort of a, what would you call it, like a barrel, a, a small ring around the propeller right. that helps make it more efficient, but also means that if you like sort of run into something, the propellers don't stall out and get caught. It, you can kind of bump into things, no big deal. Yep. And so this thing being so small and ducted means you can fly it around inside and it's, it's sort of perfectly fine. It's light enough that it isn't really going to damage much. I mean, you should still be careful, but it's not dangerous like a the, the kind of Mavic pros, like you see people flying around the big outdoor quadcopters. You probably can't fly this outdoors because uh, the wind is too big. Anyway, so it's a small ducted fan thing. And then someone put a really tiny camera on it so that it broadcasts to, if you have first person view goggles, which are basically goggles with like little TV screens in them, sort of like virtual reality screens, only there's not normally 3D information. Got it. Um, and, and so you're able to sort of fly from a first person's perspective this tiny little thing and fly it around your house. And so if you sort of watch the videos on the w- website or just go to YouTube and type it in, there's there's been new variants where they use other base quadcopter models to make the same thing. But this sort of original tiny whoop is based off of a specific model. And like it's a kind of a specific setup, but the idea has kind of caught on these tiny little quadcopters that you fly around the house and, you know, sort of do make a racetrack out of your dining room chairs or uh, whatever. That sounds it may amazing. Be. Wait, how much does this cost? So I think that this setup, which is the like the official quote unquote tiny whoop setup, is about uh, like $175 for the kind of quadcopter. But then you need the goggles and a transmitter. But the goggles and transmitters are like useful for more than just this setup. Like you could use them for other stuff. Gotcha. So that entry price is pretty high. You can do, they have like sort of knockout versions. So I think you can get it all in for probably under a hundred dollars if you do the kind of not the kind of name brand stuff. Um, right. And, and it's still a little pricey. Like I don't, to be fair, have one, but just like, I'm fascinated by this. It seems like it's almost within reach for this like childhood dream of mine to be able to kind of like play a real life video game. Right. Yeah, it, like, sounds, it sounds totally awesome. They have, basically, did you oh, see sorry. the uh, racing, the uh, quadcopter racing? It's the same. Yes. It's exactly what you described. They have the goggles, uh, but these ones are much bigger. And uh, they have this crazy obstacle course that they've built beforehand. And uh, they have to race through this obstacle course, like wearing these VR goggles. It looks awesome. Yeah. So this is basically like for me playing Pilot Wings on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, right, right. Like this is that in like real life. That sounds amazing. Yeah, we should. Uh, 
Yeah, we should totally like split one or like, you know, get a get like a pool of people together because it's probably like all together around 300 bucks. Yeah. But maybe if we get, you know, we won't use it that much. You'll get tired of it. Eventually. That's right. It's, that's the thing is like, I mean, if you're really into it, you probably, but, but for me, it's just like, I just want to play around with it for a little bit. It's, it's probably fine. So I did get a chance to try the DJI Mavic Pro, which is sort of like the newest and greatest um, outdoor kind of quadcopter with camera that a lot of people are really excited about. It's about $1,000. Oh, wow. Um, and it collapses down, folds down into uh, something that could fit in a large pocket, like think a cargo pants pocket. Okay. Um, and it hooks up to your phone really nice. And I'll say, I was sh- surprised. That is a very, very well put. I mean, $1,000 is expensive. But um, it is a very, very well put together kind of setup. The quality of the quadcopter, the kind of how the interface is thought out with using your phone as part of the controller, um, the quality of the video, and they have a gimbal on it to make the video really stable. And they have sort of cameras and I, I think ultrasound sensors or maybe just cameras what? to sort of look at the ground and sort of do stabilization. So they sort of can fly to GPS points and do altitude hold, but then at low levels they also do a lot of sort of uh, computer vision to stabilize the quadcopter very accurately at low levels and so they have even like what they call like a tripod mode where you sort of fly it up and it it almost acts as if it's a camera mounted on a tripod just filming whatever you're kind of pointed at wow Um, it's really slick so if you're interested you can go check out the videos i think they even i don't know sold out is the right word but i I think there was like it's been hard to get one they've been so popular yeah and I, again, it's, I don't know, I can really justify because if you, I guess if you went hiking amazing places that had clearance to fly these, they'd make for awesome videos. I don't go enough interesting places to want to record video of where I go from a drone or from right. anything to be fair. But, um, it, it definitely that would cool. be it, cool while you're hiking to get like really cool aerial shots of you hiking and stuff. But a thousand dollars is pretty steep. Yeah. I mean, it'd but be great I, I if you could the, rent one. The fact that they're becoming down to the price where it's an individual could own it, not like a video company or, right. Uh, right. you know, a group of people. It's, it's kind of crazy. So I look forward to the future when, you know, hopefully these things continue to get better and drop in price and everybody walks around with little flying drones over their head recording everything. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> but anyway, so Tiny Whoop, that's my like something of nostalgia sort of triggered when I saw this and I was like, oh, I really want to play with one of those. So check that's it awesome. out. Let us know yeah. if you end up... Uh, getting one or, or playing with that because it sounds awesome i just realized if anyone ever even says the word pilot wings i have to play it now <laughs> like I'm pretty much the rest of my night has been decided i was trying to teach my kid how to play it but there's still too far. it didn't yeah, really work out very that, well that's pilot wings is a tough one yeah um, so I mean, even mario is tough you know at that age a lot of games are actually tougher than i remember i had yeah. way more time when i was a kid than i do now <laughs> yeah exactly um Cool. So time for the news. My first link was a tutorial on writing a graphics shader. So I think a while ago I had either as my tool of the show or something, I had Shader Toy, which is a web website where it uses WebGL and allows you to sort of write your own shader to, to kind of play cool animations or do yep. some effects. And we talked about it briefly. Anyway, so this link we have um, is a tutorial for how to get started writing your own shader on, and it uses shader toy as an example and, and sort of walks through the explanation of what shaders are and what they do and how they work. It also serves as sort of an intro in some levels to some kind of graphics programming. Um, and I just thought it was a really well put together tutorial. I haven't had a chance to sort of follow it all the way through, 
but I sort of skimmed it and saw the approach they were taking. And I'm actually excited to, I want to kind of try this out because low level graphics programming is not the best place to spend your time if you want to write a game, but it always seems like a very interesting aspect of doing that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, super fun. It's like parallel processing, linear algebra. It's like touches a lot of like things that are really, really fun to work with. And it's a lot of the, when you learn about these things, you'll sort of recognize them when you play games often, you know, like, oh, yep. they're doing this or doing that. Uh, so anyways, we'll have the link in the show notes. I'm not gonna, it's like a very long link, so I'm not going to Yeah, gonna check it out if you're interested that. in it at all. And I think it's, it's cool, it's visual, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, a lot of these things kind of walk you through kind of the whole process, which is really cool. Um, check it out. So my, my news is a pretty cool thing. It's some folks at Microsoft. Uh, building an underwater data center and these guys literally did this uh they have these huge pipes and each pipe has a rack uh you know uh inscribed in the pipe and uh um you know with all the wires switches and everything and then they have you know a huge high bandwidth cable um coming out of the data center right so you can get the information out um, but yeah the whole thing's underwater so as a result they don't need any cooling or anything like that um, it's super interesting. Tons of pictures of the whole process. Um, they actually, I guess because of the heat and just being a surface on the water, it grew a lot of organisms on the data center. So there's just a lot of sea creatures living, uh, uh on the surface of the data center, um, which is fine. Um, and, uh, yeah, but they talk about how they get the electricity in and stuff like that. It's a, it's a really, really cool article. Um, give it a give it a read if you have some time. No, I'm distracted. I, I want to envision where are other interesting places you can put data centers. Oh, um, hmm. I mean, I think underwater is the best because so like you know, water volcano ubiquitous. I guess you could use like the thermal heat to make your power. Oh yeah, you could, but now cooling. But then now yeah, tough. now cooling is yeah. a problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, they do a lot in. Uh, 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 places that have waterways, like they basically build a dam. It's a dam mm. and a data center all in one. Um, but uh, yeah, there's one. There's some kind of in the desert area, and they they're all run by solar farms. Oh, yeah. Normally, um, where cheap yeah. electricity is. Yeah, exactly. So if you have a data center, a, a cluster of many computers, and you wanted to do some machine learning on it, you could use TensorFlow 1.0, which just that's came out. right. Um, Pretty that was cool. My, bad attempt at a segue. <laughs> uh, so TensorFlow announced that they hit their 1.0 milestone. Um, there's a lot of sort of low-level things that I guess they improved, and I'm not a, I'm not a TensorFlow developer, but the one that caught my attention here is they're sort of feeling that their Python API has become stable, which Good. means that for re- features, for releases going forward, they don't feel like it's going to change dramatically, which means you can... St- kind of depend on it being close to what it is today and that every time they change it you're not going to have to go update a whole bunch of code right yeah very cool yeah tensorflow is great um you know i highly recommend it i think you know i i uh i've used r i've used matlab um but going to numpy for me was was great because uh there's a lot of like file io and different format handling and all these things that are really a pain to do in MATLAB or R. Like you end up having to do them in C or anyways um, versus Python has support for everything. Um, and so I used NumPy for a while and Theano and all that. And TensorFlow is just 
a cut above all of that. So it's really good to see that it's stable and, you know, it doesn't sound like it's going away anytime soon. So my article is, uh, why are Indian engineers afraid of AI, afraid of artificial intelligence? And, uh, it's a super interesting article. I mean, it touches on a lot of different parts of, of Indian culture and things like that, that I knew nothing about until I read the article. Um, one interesting thing that it really made me think about is apparently in, in India, but I feel like it's also true here in the U.S., there's a lot of pressure to be a manager. And so, you know, if if you have to spend all of this time and energy um, learning a specialty, like an individual special skill like AI, um, or if you want to be like a super expert in databases or just a super expert in graphics or something like that. That's time that you could be spending getting an MBA and like going the manager route. And so, uh, you know, this is true everywhere, but I guess particularly in India, it's just very hard to get people to specialize in these sort of uh, individual kind of specialities for this reason. Everyone wants to get an MBA and be a manager. Um, And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Like, I'd be interested to hear what you think about it as well, Patrick, but like, I think, you know, a lot of companies here in Silicon Valley do a pretty good job of making sure that there isn't like a, you know, a economic or a game theoretic incentive to being a manager. That it's basically, you know, you can be a manager, you could be, you could specialize and they don't kind of set up the company so that one is just obviously better than the other. And so that, that helps, um, you know, encourage more people to specialize. But I think in general, this is just a big problem. I mean, I mean, if you look at the CEO, the CEO isn't an AI person most of the time. Most of the time, the CEO is someone who manages the people under them. And so there's this sort of implication that that is sort of the way to the most fulfilling life. And uh, it'll be interesting, especially, you know, the demand for CS specialists in a variety of fields is extremely high. It'll be interesting to see sort of how we deal with this you know, as a society. For AI in particular, I feel that the background you need, at least currently, to, to be able to kind of create AI solutions or, you know, the, the sort of deep learning neural network, the stuff that's hot right now, you need background in a lot of things that take just a certain amount of time spent working on those things to get to that specialty. Um, you can kind of work in the frameworks or hooking up bits of uh, existing frameworks together, but kind of like actually from scratch figuring out a correct solution to the problem and making sure that the AI solution or the machine learning solution is actually appropriate for your problem. Like the kind of understanding for that seems to require a relatively compared to doing other stuff in computer science investment uh, and getting enough learning to be able to do that well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Um, And so I think the manager thing is an interesting twist on it, which is to say that, you know, you could spend all of that time becoming a manager instead, except that I think being a manager, people who, in my experience, has been people who are good at engineering don't always want to do the things that managers sort of need to do to be good managers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So, so if you enjoy, you know, sitting down at code and hacking on it and solving a problem and optimizing something and thinking through clever new solutions, I mean, that doesn't say you won't also enjoy problem solving 
you know, human conflict and negotiating deadlines and doing software estimation. But those two aren't as close as I think people often assume they might be. And so often you find engineers convert to being managers and become unhappy because they actually preferred doing what they were doing before. And I, I think sometimes, like you said, often companies try to set it up so that you don't have to do that. Like you don't have to become a manager to get a promotion or at least in most of the uh, engineering companies I've worked at, that hasn't been the case. You can still get promoted as a technical contributor. Um, but it often seems that there's more competition for the technical contributor than, say, a manager. Um, but I don't know right. if that's just perceived. And that you know, management is actually also very tough because you know, you're, the buck sort of stops there. And if you mess it up, you know, it's very easy to kind of not get fired, I don't think, but, you know, just kind of not get the sort of credit or the compensation that you would want because you're seen as not performing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there are pros and cons to both. Um, I actually really, I feel pretty good about, um, this, this issue, like, like the issue being, you know, in this particular article, uh, people, you know, everyone wanting to go into management, but I think, you know, the, the trend is already kind of shifting the other way. Like there's a lot of people with MBAs and, uh, um, and so I think the, the pros of, you know, specializing even as an individual contributor are starting to really stand out. And so my guess is, you know, this sort of like pressure to like climb the ladder by being a major is going to get kind of less and less. Yeah. We've never really talked about it, but I've always struggled to see that we haven't kind of come across a great, and I don't know, maybe other industries have it or don't have it, but there never seems to be a consensus on like what is a good team structure. So often you end up on a project that says, hey, we're trying to be very flat, you know, very essentially very large numbers of engineers to relatively few managers. But then there seems to be some pendulum that swings back the other way and says that's actually too difficult for the managers to sort of figure out what's going on. So then we right. need to organize the engineers into groups and whether you like it or not, that sort of works away from flat and into sort of hierarchies uh, and then right. back and forth. This is sort of way off topic of, of the article, but I just sort of have never heard or seen or found a company that is trying to grow and change. Um, maybe stable companies is different, but companies which are under growth and change and new projects and new work and that kind of stuff that have found a good balance of what the a good team composition really looks like. Yeah, I agree 100% super hard problem um yeah i think i feel like every i feel like there's progress like you know i definitely see i feel like things are better now in general when i hear anecdotes from people and things like that than you know maybe five or ten years ago um but yeah it's still totally unsolved problem all right time for book of the show my book of the show is the divine comedy which is a very old book. It's written by Dante Alighieri, and it's about, um, it's a fiction book about his uh, journey into uh, the center of Earth, which is hell. <laughs> so in his book, um, he goes through all the different, uh, I can't remember, it's like the rings of hell. I think it's, yeah, the rings of hell. Uh, he gets to hell, which is at the center of the Earth. He actually passes through that, um, and I guess once you go through in the story, once you go through the center of the earth, you come up on, you start to approach the surface from uh, on the other end of the earth, right? 
Um, and, and that's where purgatory is and so on and so forth. And he explains all this. The reason why I'm reading this is um, just over the years from, you know, everything from Game of Thrones with the giants to uh, um, to like uh, NetHack and Dungeon Crawl, these games that have literally have the demons and the fiends from 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 uh, Dante's uh, The Divine Comedy um, in, in them. And, uh, you know, it's just you see the same kind of it's kind of like reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like you see so many of these references to, like Greek mythology and things like that that are all contained in, in Dante's Inferno and other books um, that I felt like I was going to kind of bite the bullet and read this sort of classic um, it's pretty hard to read because the whole the entire thing is a poem. It's written in like a poem format. So it's just pages and pages and pages of poems. Um, so, yeah, but I'm making my way through it. But one kind of cool thing I found out along the way is, and I, I remember hearing about this every now and then, but I never really looked into it, is Project Gutenberg, which is basically uh, all of the public domain books that they can get their hands on, which I think they're up to like 53,000. Um, they have uh, curated in like electronic format and it's very high quality. The photos are high quality. They have Mobi, EPUB, PDF, so they have all the right formats. Um, and you know they had the Divine Comedy. And if, if you want to read a book like Alice in Wonderland or any of these books, 1984, any of these books that uh, you know, is in the public domain, um, you can get it from this website. And it's probably the best version you're gonna get. Um, so yeah, that's that's my uh, book of the show. Yeah, you weren't kidding about old. It was written in 1320. Yeah. Now they have like uh, different versions. Obviously, it's written in Italian. Um, the version uh, that I'm reading is actually relatively recent. Like I think it's written in the past 50 years or so. Um, but yeah, it's still like pretty hard to read. <laughs> my book is not old. It's actually quite new, and it's A Night Without Stars by Peter F. Hamilton. And this is, I've had several uh, Peter Hamilton books on, on our 65, or no, 63 episodes. I'm sure I've had more than a few. And this is part of his Commonwealth saga, um, specifically the Fallers part of that. He has sort of what, what a trilogy, and is it duology? I don't know, whatever, two books. Uh, maybe, yeah. So I think in his Commonwealth Saga, there's like a duology, a trilogy, and then this one is a duology. So there was a, a previous book, and then this is a second book, and this called Chronicle of the Fallers. The first one was Abyss Beyond Dreams. Uh, I don't know. These are just words. I have to yeah, look the up. The titles sound awesome. Abyss, Abyss Beyond, Beyond Dreams. And this is Night Without Stars. Um, and, nice. And it's about the the same. So it's the second book to the this other one. And it kind of wraps up the series. And, and I guess I was reading it. sounds like he has sort of saying this is the last book in the whole Commonwealth saga. Um, so if you've not read anything in Peter F. Hamilton's world, don't start here. This is sort of like very, very late slash maybe even the end of the Commonwealth saga um, altogether. But the world he's sort of created in this sci-fi um, book, which they're all – they're really big books. So uh, – I think in total, like with all of the books, it's something that somebody said like 8,000 pages or something. Oh, oh wow. 5,300 pages, sorry. Um, oh, 5,300 wow. pages in total. So it's, you know, it's an investment. But um, he, he creates a world that is deals with a lot of things that I find very interesting. So sort of what happens when a society goes post-scarcity 
that you know things are very different why do people do what they do when humans can augment their body with you know a technological enhancements some people want to some people don't some people take it to an extreme um, some people there sort of becomes a middle ground of how you modify your body what happens if you can sort of you know uh, rejuvenate your body down to a younger age so you know aging becomes sort of oh, wow. optional like what age would you sort of lock in at and what age would you stay? And, you know, if you wanted to kind of become a little bit of an older person, it's almost becomes an eccentric affectation that like, oh, that's a 45 year old person. Like, wow, like interesting. I wonder why they let themselves be 45 instead of staying at 20. Um, oh, wow. And there's a lot of interesting concepts. Um, and then there's aliens as well and how aliens can be so very different than humans, but also sometimes the same. Uh Anyways, there's a lot of good stuff in his book, and he has it's really thought provoking. After I always, whenever I finish one of his books, I always find myself like really excited to like invent something or like I want <laughs> I want the thing that he's describing in his book. You know, I want to like go. I guess sort of Isaac Asimov um, or Arthur C. Clarke sort of did the same thing, right? They described satellites before satellites were a thing. They described space right. travel before we went into outer space, and People kind of, I, I could very much imagine feeling the same way. Now, me reading their books, I appreciate them. They're good books, but they don't inspire in the same way because they sort of describe something that has already been described by others and that we've also sort of entered into that future. Um, right. But this, I sort of feel maybe gives me the same feeling that people reading those had, you know, 30 years ago or I don't know the right number of years ago. Um, but kind of reading about satellites before the first Sputnik went up, right? Um, would have been just crazy. And so for this, I sort of reading about the stuff that it's like, well, I really hope one day people are inspired to go invent these things. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I wonder, wouldn't it be crazy? I mean, if they invented a way to slow, you know, to, to slow aging, but they did it kind of so late that we're already like 60 or 70, I'd probably just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough call. Um, but yeah, that book sounds awesome. I'll totally read it. Once I'm done reading about hell, I'll read oh, about dear. Well, don't forever. go read this one. Go back and read. I think the first one is Pandora's Box. Oh, or okay. Pandora's Star. Okay. Sorry, Pandora's Star. I, yeah. Uh, is, I believe, the first one in the comic book okay. saga. So. Cool. And I will read them using Audible. Um, I've started uh, kind of getting into audiobooks. Um, the biggest thing was, like, I find my eyes are hurting. And, and, and really, it's because... Uh, I think I'm on my phone too much. <laughs> like I, I used to be on the computer maybe six, seven hours a day. And now I'm still on the computer six, seven hours a day, but I'm on my phone maybe four hours a day. And it's just too much. Um, I don't know if those numbers are totally accurate, but, but I realized that I'm just looking at screens way too much. And so um, I've started doing audiobooks. I've also started getting into drawing. I, 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 uh, uh, getting into pencil drawing with an actual pencil instead of using, uh, you know, Photoshop. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think Audible is pretty awesome for being able to listen to the books and kind of just close your eyes. and uh, Or if you're driving, uh, don't close your eyes, but uh, not, not crash into anybody. Um, but be able to, like, you know, kind of uh, give your eyes a break from the computer screen or the Kindle or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I love it for my commute. So this book that I was just saying that I, I just finished, A Night Without Stars, is 26, hour, 26 and a half hours long. So, you know, you could sit there and read a book, like you said, but I'm already... It's like three days of driving in the valley, right? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I could tell you it's unfortunately not as long as I would wish it was to take to finish. <laughs> I finish them more quickly. I'm always surprised at how fast I make it through a 40-hour book or a 25-hour right. book or a 20-hour book. Um, and then when you get kind of eight-hour books, which are kind of normal novel size, it's just like, you know, yeah, that doesn't even last a week. Um, and uh, anyways, but yeah, so listening to audiobooks is great to, to pass the time. If you, if you commute on the bus or you drive or... Um, you know, spend any amount of time where you kind of, like, like Jason said, you either don't want to sit there staring at your phone for the length of time or for me, like on a bus or train, like I get sort of sick looking at my phone, um, from the vibrations and audible is a great way to still sort of enjoy, enjoy content and of course podcasts, but, um, you know, Audible's is a great way to enjoy books that you might otherwise not get a convenient opportunity to read. That's right. Um, we also, so check out audible, you can go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown all one word and we have a link to that in the show notes as well and uh, you could get started on your free trial um you can also support the show through patreon um patreon.com slash programming throwdown um and uh that really helps us out it goes directly to you know server costs setting up the t-shirt stores um you know uh, things like that we actually use tons of terabytes of uh of data a month and so, you know, the contributions help cover that. We also occasionally do raffles. A couple of lucky uh, subscribers got a couple of t-shirts. I verified the t-shirts actually got there. So, uh, um, so you know who you are. We called you out last show and you, and you should have your t-shirt. If, if by some crazy reason you don't and someone else picked up your t-shirt, uh, <laughs> let me know. But uh, that shouldn't happen. All right. Well, time for tool of the show. Tool of the show. This is a total cop-out, um, but I built my own tool and I want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't think that's a cop-out. I feel like that's like uh, overachieving. Maybe, yeah. So basically, um, I wanted a SSH-like thing that lasted forever. Um, you know, it survived. Like if I, you know, I'm always on the go. Like I, I'm on my laptop, but I'm SSH'd into a uh, machine in a cluster where I do all of my work. I don't do any work on my actual laptop. All my work is done remotely. Um, and so I'm SSH into that machine. Um, and so, you know, I'd close my laptop. I'd go to a meeting. I open my laptop and the connection's dead. You know, or I, I close my laptop, go to on the shuttle, open my laptop, connection's dead. And I have to, you, know, you have to do this goofy thing at SSH. You do like tilde period. Uh, to like kill the connection, even though, you know, because it doesn't think it's dead. They have to go back into SSH and they have to use screen. And it's just, it was just a huge pain. So, uh, um, so yeah, I built this thing called Eternal Terminal. Um, it's pretty cool. It takes a little bit of setup. Uh, I built a little website explaining how it works. Um, you have to install something on your uh, laptop or on your, you know, client. You have to install a piece of software on the server as well. <clears throat> and then, uh, it will actually use SSH to kind of start the connection. So you still have to have an SSH server, but you know, most people do. Um, it'll kind of negotiate the eternal terminal connection. And then after that, you're solid. So um, from kind of the user perspective, it's just replacing SSH with ET. So you do ET, you do the location of the server, um, and it will do everything else, handle all the negotiation, and then boom, you have a terminal um, 
and it's just there forever. So if you open up your laptop, I, I actually closed my laptop. I had a terminal running top, which people don't know. Top is this Unix command that every second or two, it prints out the you know state of the computer, like the processor usage and things like that. Um, so I had top going inside of an eternal terminal. Uh, I closed my laptop. I opened it about three days later and it actually like fast forwarded through all of the top. Like in other words, like all these numbers started flying by and basically top was catching me up on the state of my machine, you know, for all those seconds for the whole three days. Um, but it fast forwarded all the way to the present and then it just kept going. Um, so I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I'm still working on getting it like into Ubuntu and Debian and some of these, you know, like uh, uh, Linux OSs, like getting it built in, which is really interesting. I've never done that before. Um, so in the meantime, you have to do a little bit of finagling to get it to work. Uh, you know, like you, you have to uh, install an RPM from file and stuff like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's coming along and it, it, it does the job. And uh, um, if you do a lot of SSH, check this out. Well, after that overachieving bit of awesomeness, <laughs> mine is simply a website, uh, myminifactory.com. If you've heard of Thingiverse, this is sort of similar. It's a oh, place yeah, for yeah. 3D models. So I have a 3D printer. And this website, I just, I don't know. Thingiverse has sort of almost everything, but it's sort of hard to find the kind of best stuff. Um, this is a little more selective in what they have. It has a little less, but it tends to kind of be more interesting uh, on average, I guess. Um, and so okay. if you have a 3D printer or want to be inspired as to why you should want a 3D printer, then you should check out myminifactory.com. Um, they have all sorts of weird smash-ups between different funny characters, like I'm looking at apparently a Bender head statue on top of a Buddha. Nice. Or okay, I don't, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, there's lots of right. sort of fan art for, you know, lightsabers. Here's a magical fishing hook from Moana, um, you cool. know, just all sorts of interesting trinkets. I don't know that they're particularly useful, um, but they're sort of fun. And um, if, if you like kind of using a 3D printer to print out things that uh, are sort of unique that if you didn't have a 3D printer, you probably wouldn't have, then uh, this is a great site to go to. So can you, if you print a 3D toy for your kids, yes. let's assume your kids are over the stage where they eat everything, yes. right? Like, is it safe? Like, if my son is, like, running and he falls with the toy, you know, is it going to, like, splinter and, like, destroy um, him or something? I, I, I'm I not a lawyer. I would not give <laughs> child safety advice. Okay. Yeah, this is yeah, not a <laughs> good point. Okay, yeah, for this total disclaimer here, this is our opinion, and don't try I this mean, at I mean, I let my kids play with them. The PLA, okay. so while you're printing, so my printer lives in the garage, um, and then I have webcam okay. set up to monitor it. Um because there okay. is some sort of sometimes when you're doing printing, they're sort of grinding gears on the plastic and the plastic kind of gets into little bits of dust that float around in the air. And you wouldn't want to breathe that in. Um, Got it. Uh, and depending on the kind of plastic you're printing. But the most common ones are ABS and PLA. Um, and ABS is often used for like drinking water pipes. Um, and oh, okay. PLA is used for the compostable plastic cups if you ever see those. Um, oh, okay, so it's like yeah. a corn or it can be corn based, um, biodegradable thing. Uh, and so I, okay. you know, my kids don't put things in their mouth 
So right. I'm not too worried about it. If they tripped and fell, I mean, it's a, they have little die cast toys as well. I, you know, this seems less bad than that. Um, yeah, that's true. But yeah, cool. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a child safety expert. You, you're, you yeah, yeah, pop, don't your kids will us, probably die if you give them toys advice. to play with. <laughs> <laughs> if you give, if you, if you have your kids, if your kids have any fun, they might die. You know, I had a chemistry set that actually had magnesium strips and like you could make napalm and all this stuff. Like it had instructions for making napalm. And uh, I got a chemistry set for uh, my cousin's kid and uh, it was like nothing. Like everything was edible. <laughs> like you couldn't actually do anything. I think you, all you could do is make a volcano or something. It's like things have gotten so tame. Yes. Anyway. I, I don't disagree, but um, I am not a lawyer. I will not recommend you teach your kids to make napalm. Uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I should probably shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should delete my browser history. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, now we have a, uh, a really cool interview. And so, uh, we're going to take it away. All right. Hey, everyone. So, we're here with Spencer Gibb who's a principal engineer at Spring Cloud, and Mark Heckler, who's a developer advocate for Pivotal. And uh, we're going to talk all about come the Spring Framework, which is uh, something pretty cool. I've definitely used it in the past. A lot of people, if, you, if you're a Java developer, you've used it or you at least know about it. Um, but now we have experts who can really tell us, um, kind of fill in all of the holes in our sort of Swiss cheese mental model of Spring. Um, so kind of, you know, Mark and Spencer, kind of just give a brief intro of uh, yourselves, uh, kind of what do you do at, at Pivotal and, and what parts of the Spring Framework you're most interested in? Okay, well, I guess I will uh, start. Uh, my name is Mark Heckler. I'm a developer advocate uh, for Pivotal. Uh, Pivotal covers a lot of ground. And um, uh, the, the two big things that Pivotal is probably known for, among many things, are the Spring Framework and the Spring Portfolio of, of uh, development products, as well as uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Uh, I do kind of deal with both of those, but I focus primarily on the Spring Portfolio. And um, I get to go out and um, my, develop, my, my background is in development, so I get to go out and talk to a lot of developers about uh, what they're doing and how they can hopefully do it better with Spring. My name is Spencer Gibb. I'm one of the leads on Spring Cloud. Spring Cloud is focused on eliminating some of the boilerplate that comes with distributed systems. Often you find yourself uh, in that situation when you have a microservice architecture and we, we try and eliminate some of the heartache and problems that uh, come from that. Cool. That makes sense. So when you say Spring Cloud, is this like uh, interfacing with AWS or is this more MapReduce Spark type computing? Spring Cloud, uh, it, the core of it deals with things like service discovery and configuration, distributed configuration, and um, circuit breakers and, and different things like that, um, regardless of which cloud infrastructure you run on. Um, gotcha. Cool. Very cool. So if you had to give, I mean, I know Spring is is just a massive framework. I've seen so many things come from Spring. Like one uh, thing I used from Spring was a OAuth plugin, where you know you could you know log in through Facebook, log in through Google. Um, but you know Spring does so many different things. If you had to sort of describe the Spring framework in a few sentences, um, kind of how how could you do that? Uh, well, I'll take a, a first shot at this, and Spencer can fill in wherever uh, I may leave a gap. 
the Spring Framework kind of started off as as a way to fix a very bad situation with Enterprise Java. And of course, it grew to provide a lot of capabilities. And then, of course, various um, uh, different components or different parts of the, the overall puzzle uh, came into being to solve different needs. So you have things like Spring Cloud, which covers uh, an imperative model of cloud uh, development. And you have things like the new uh, Project Reactor, which covers uh, uh, a reactive, the reactive space. And you have uh, Spring Data and, and Spring Cloud OAuth and uh, Spring Security and, and several other projects which were incubated. And if sufficient uh, value is seen, if there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of folks embrace that and see that as, as meeting a real need, of course, usually that's kind of folded into the overall uh, project going forward or the portfolio going forward. From my point of view recently, I've thought of Spring as it's a tool to eliminate boilerplate, eliminate those repetitive things you do over and over and over. Um, I can't remember which which person on the team said it, but when you use Spring, and in particular Spring Boot and Spring Cloud, it's like pair programming with the whole Spring team, right? You're Nice. They're part of they're part of your team, and you don't have to worry about all those things that that they do. You get to focus on uh, what James Waters calls the value line, right? What what whatever your project does that is unique, rather than all the stuff that everybody does over and over and over. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know just one of the first things that made me think about things along that lines when I found out about protocol buffers or thrift or one of these you know, Avro or any of these sort of container frameworks. And I realized, oh, I don't have to write 2,000 lines of code to take these Java objects and put them on the hard drive or send them to another computer. Um, that they've just found some way where I can write, you know, a couple of lines of code and, and protocol buffers will do so much work, work for me. And, uh, um, and Spring is, is, is much the same way where Trust me, you don't want to learn about OAuth 2 and redirect URLs and tokens, and you, you don't want to have to deal with any of that. Um, that I'm pretty sure that won't be whoever's listening. That won't be core to your business. Your business is going to be about making a cool app or or a website. You know, providing some entertainment or some education uh, to to you know a broad set of people, not you know trying to understand tokens. And so using you know, that element of the Spring framework uh, can greatly help that. So how does Spring then relate to, say, Apache Commons, right? Apache Commons is also sort of a large collection of libraries that, you know, kind of enable developers. So is Spring just like kind of a similar vehicle, but more geared to enterprise or, or kind of what are the differences there? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tag in first on this. I, I feel like a lot of the value that that's the various Spring uh, components bring to the mix is a opinionate, uh, an opinionated approach. Sometimes you hear that, and a lot of times people will say, well, what does that really mean? Uh, the idea behind an opinionated approach is that rather than provide you a dozen different ways of doing something, uh, what we try to do is provide a very clear-cut path uh, with a, kind of a path of least resistance to cover that 80 to 90% of use cases. So for the, the many, many things that we do that are very similar uh, across the board, we want to make that very easy for you to do with a minimal amount of code. Uh, but in the old days, the old bad old days of frameworks, typically you had one way to do things, and that was the framework way. And if you didn't do it the framework way, tough. You know, you just couldn't get it done with that that particular tool set. 
but with an opinionated approach, we want to solve that 80 to 90% use case very easily. And yet still, if you need to color outside those lines, we want to get out of your way and allow you to meet those needs as well. So when you talk about things like Apache Commons or other open source libraries, typically they'll either try to, and I'm, I'm kind of painting with a bro uh, broad brush here, but they try to either provide a lot of different ways to do things or one way to do things. We try to provide that one way very easily and yet still provide you that escape hatch to let you do the other things fairly easily, but with a little more effort on your part. And Spring Framework, you know, at its core is a dependency injection framework, and then things have been added on, right, like uh, Spring MVC, uh, which is the, the web framework, and, and things like you've talked about, like security and... Um, there's also things like Spring Data and, and other things. And each one of those in and of itself could be of comparable size and complexity to something like uh, Apache Commons. Um, and uh, there's some slides from Phil Webb, one of the, the leads of Spring Boot, which he, he paints a picture of Spring Framework. He puts up a picture of a bunch of ingredients for a cake, right? Eggs, flour, sugar, vanilla all those different things. Spring Boot is a baked cake, right? Like Mark talked about. It's the it will get you most of the way there. And and projects like Spring Cloud, where Spring Boot focuses on us uh, an individual process, Spring Cloud kind of focuses on multiple processes and the coordination between those processes at a high level. Cool. That makes sense. So typically when you think about Spring, you think about uh, kind of web, you know, web frameworks and web services. And that, that seems like that was a lot of the origin. It sounds like the origin was initially dependency injection. Uh, but I, when I found out about it, uh, it, it had gotten into web. But now it sounds like it's going even kind of beyond web to a lot of other kind of typical use cases for Java engineers. Yeah, there's beyond web things like Spring Data, where there are, Spring has a template pattern that it uses that makes interfacing with different technologies simple. There's JDBC template and and Rabbit template for interfacing with RabbitMQ, but there's also interfaces to different styles of databases, NoSQL key value stores, document stores. There are stream-related technologies, so using interfacing with technologies like Kafka and, of course, RabbitMQ and Redis and uh, so it's it's becoming quite broad and, and useful in uh, anywhere from large projects to small ones because of the the ease of use of Spring Boot. Cool, that makes sense. So 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 there's Pivotal, which is the is the sort of company that is uh, uh, you know leading the charge on Spring. What are some other projects that that Pivotal is really involved in right now? Uh, well, they Pivotal are. I guess as a, uh, a whole, uh, huge contributors to Apache Tomcat. We also have several projects that we've either um, brought under our, our fold in terms of uh, stewardship or have uh, created ourselves, things like Redis, RabbitMQ, Greenplum. Uh, we also have contributed a lot of code and a lot of hours and time and commitment to uh, Cloud Foundry. Uh, Cloud Foundry is a, um, uh, run by a foundation, uh, you have big players like IBM and HP and and uh, GE and and CenturyLink and of course Pivotal, uh, among many others, uh, who have uh, come together to create a an open source cloud platform. 
uh, pivotal as one player in that, but a very strong player in that as well, again, with time and, and resources behind it. Uh, so that's kind of a, a smattering, but, but uh, of course, uh, spring engineers, pivotal engineers in general have their hands in a lot of things and contribute. Uh, you know, it's the open source ethos is kind of, uh, you know, interwoven uh, with the company and with all of us. So I think we all try to contribute where we can. Cool. That makes sense. I think you kind of alluded to this, but who are sort of the big uh, users of spring? Like who are sort of your heavy hitters who have, you know, the most, the, the P90, right? The people who have the, the 10% most servers and, and, and users who are using the spring framework. Um, I don't have a huge uh, um, list of customers, but I can tell you some that I've visited that have, have you know, publicly um, announced they're using a use of, of Cloud Foundry and Spring as well. So I've personally visited Comcast and was just at Ford last week. Um, so there are some, some really big companies that are, are using Spring and Cloud Foundry as well. Yeah, I just off the top of my head, I can think of uh, folks like um, Home Depot, Allstate, JPMC. Um, and I know I, I actually kind of went looking because uh, you, you find the Spring Framework and Spring Boot and, and various components that are, are in use in different places that you wouldn't necessarily hear a lot about. But they're just um, any place that has a, a need for a, a robust backend uh, processing or a cloud uh, cloud capabilities in-house or uh, um, on-premises or in public cloud, you typically see Spring employed in some capacity or another. And I, I kind of went through the, um, uh, did a little bit of behind the scenes searching and, and saw that most of your major players that you might imagine in Silicon Valley and throughout the country uh, have uh, used Spring in some capacity or other. So as far as the penetration uh, among those different companies, I have no idea, but I, I do know that uh, it's pretty widely used pretty much anywhere you can imagine. <laughs> cool. um, yeah, there are some some large Chinese companies that, that use uh, Spring as well. And, and I know of a lot of companies that use Spring, they just aren't paying customers to Pivotal, so there's not a lot of uh, PR that goes with that. So but there, are, it's, it's in loose use in a lot of places. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, there's, there's, it's like, it's like uh, for everyone you see, there's probably 49 that, that are using it that you don't know about because of it's open source, <laughs> right? Until you get that pull request of with forty thousand lines from some company that you never knew existed, right? Exactly. Um, so, so let's say someone is is uh, you know fresh out of college, they want to build their first kind of cool website, and they want to use Spring. Um, they might know Java, but you know I've never heard of Spring other than this podcast. Um, how would you recommend them to get started? Like, what sort of the uh, the hello world of spring. Well, one thing that I think uh, we do a really nice job with is is creating some really good bite-sized getting started guides, as well as some more in-depth guides. Uh, and if you go to spring.io slash guides, I believe it is, uh, we'll, I'll verify that and we can link to that in, uh, in the show notes. But um, uh, we have a, a lot of bite-sized use cases that someone can say, "Well, gosh, how do I how do I create a um, you know a, a, a REST API? How do I how do I create 
how do I work with Redis? How do I work with Kafka? How do I uh, maybe plug into a, a, a NoSQL data store behind the scenes using Spring Data? And we have these kind of bite-sized guides that, that step you through that, typically using Spring Boot, uh, because Spring Boot makes all of this much more easily consumable and approachable. Uh, so uh, the, the, the website you typically start with to create your an empty shell project based on dependencies you specify is the Spring Initializer site, which is start.spring.io, uh, which gets you, uh, doesn't generate any code, but it will create a shell project that gives you kind of a running start at your application. And then, of course, the Getting Started Guides give you that kind of walk alongside you holding your hand and get you started with it. And then, of course, we have a really good Spring Central uh, Twitter account as well as a, a good YouTube channel, which give you a lot of very short as well as very in-depth uh, video guides to kind of get you up and running and started. And, of course, past that, we're on Gitter, we're on Twitter, we're everywhere you might want to uh, reach out, and we encourage that from the community because uh, sometimes someone will come up with a question that we've perhaps never thought of or perhaps it's not a typical use case, but it's something we want to consider. Or they may, again, as you said, ping us with a pull request. And, and I always tell people, Get the bits, play with the bits, get the code, you know, play with the code, look through the code. And uh, if you see something we're missing, let us know. And if you maybe want to submit a pull request, do that as well, uh, because it's all out there. We, you know, that's that's kind of how you, you get up to speed and running and, and do useful things is to, to start working with it. So we try to make that easy as well. Cool. That makes sense. That sounds great. We'll definitely include those links on the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to check out those those guides, probably the best way would be to click on the show notes link in the podcast notes, and then we'll have links over there. Um, so uh, I uh, I know that, you know, Apache has the Apache sort of incubator, right, for projects that are, uh, you know, kind of not really ready for prime time or not really ready for enterprise. So if you if you could spill the beans, what's a sort of a amazing kind of spring project that's an incubation right now that people can really look forward to um i don't know that there's there's much that's under under wraps uh, a lot of what we plan on implementing this year we talked about at uh, spring one platform which uh, is our spring and cloud foundry uh, conference that happens once a year and so a lot of things have been were talked about then and, and the roadmap was was given generally. But some of the things that, that are ongoing, um, Spring 5, which is well underway, has a number of stories. Um, it will be a baseline of Java 8, which is a fairly large uh, shift from the 6, 7, and 8 uh, support in the older lines. Um, and then... Mark alluded to it a little bit before, but there's a, a reactive story. So allowing access to resources in a non-blocking uh, manner that will be throughout Spring Framework. Um, their Spring Boot version 2 will, will build upon that and have a... Uh, there's a new... Uh, if you've worked with Spring MVC before, you have kind of have the annotation-based way of doing web services. Um, if you've seen that, but there there will also be a uh, functional way of, of doing web services. So some of the people that may have 
experience in another functional language that is used to that, uh, especially with Java 8, they'll be able to uh, have a similar uh, experience while having all of the same uh, history and, and stability that Spring Framework gives you. Um, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I really love the, I mean, I've used Reactive um, programming. I've used Angular before on, on JavaScript side. I've seen React. There's a, I think a Java RX or something like that, but I, I haven't RX actually, Java. RX Java. That's right. I haven't actually used it, but, uh, I love the idea. It's kind of like, you know, an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of formulas. And when you change the numbers, everything else just magically is computed, right? So there's a lot of appeal to that. Yeah. The, the original reactive extensions came were from Microsoft and the folks at Netflix decided they they wanted something similar, but they were heavy JVM users, so they created RX Java. And uh, now there are a number of reactive implementations in in various languages. And so, so yeah, it's uh, in fact there's a uh, reactive streams project was a which is an interoperability. Um, interfaces between some of these projects. So, for example, if you have an RX Java observable, but you're using, you want to go to a reactor flux, which those don't matter, but there are interfaces that they both implement that, that you can get some uh, compatibility between them. Cool. That's awesome. Um, so, um, besides Spring Framework, uh, what other things do you want uh, kind of listeners to check out? And we mentioned uh, Cloud Foundry. That's definitely a good one to check out. Are there any other uh, things that Pivotal is working on or just things where you kind of have this amazing tool or library or language and uh, and uh, you feel like it, it uh, is neglected, like an unsung hero uh, that, that, that uh, you'd want to bring up? Well, I, I'll jump in here again. I, it's kind of hard for me to choose favorites. You know, you always hear that from a parent, I guess. But <laughs> uh, although I'm not, I'm not really the father of any of this. I, I just uh, am one of the many, many, many beneficiaries, really, and and uh, ardent fans, so to speak. But uh, you know, you have so many things in in the Spring framework in general and the Spring portfolio that are are were developed to solve a real need. You know, they're they're meant to be workhorses, not racehorses, in a lot of ways. In terms of, uh, I, I keep going back to Spring Data, and I think Spencer's mentioned that too. It's not overly sexy. It's not um, uh, necessarily something that you'd really uh, get excited about about using per se. It's just that it works so well that you you find yourself coming back to it and coming back to it over and over for projects. Uh, and and I see a lot of our portfolio is solving really strong burning needs, uh, but it's not. There's not a lot of sizzle there. It just fills a gap so well. Uh, the one thing that I'm kind of excited about is that reactive story because uh, for a long time, I think the the uh, the Java ecosystem has has kind of taken it on the chin on on the reactive side of things, uh, and of course, RX Java being a, a very notice notable exception in that regard. But uh, with Project Reactor, uh, we're actually implementing uh, reactive uh, capabilities throughout. All of the Spring Framework, uh, all the way from the lowest uh, tier, you know, storing the data, uh, all the way up uh, through to a web client. So that is um, it's a Herculean task, and we're implementing that in parallel with the imperative model that we already have in place that's kind of battle-tested for, you know, well over a decade, significantly over a decade. 
And we're implementing those in parallel so that people can bring their institutional knowledge, their uh, existing knowledge, and have it immediately apply and to not have to convert everything over to where it's it's an all or nothing. So that kind of excites me because I can use the tool that makes sense when it makes sense to use it. And that's all any of us want, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know there have been, I mean, every time, you know, a, a framework or a language does something that isn't backwards compatible, it's always extremely painful. I mean, you know, we still can't just as a, as a um, community get beyond Python 2. Like, it's still hard to get everyone on Python 3. It's been what, I don't know exactly how long, but it's got to be at least five years, if not longer. Um, and, and the same with Angular. I mean, Angular went to 2.0, and it's not backwards compatible. And it's just, it's very hard to migrate the whole community over. Yeah, and you don't want to lose that that expertise that you've developed as a developer. You don't want to feel like, well, that's great, but everything I've done up to this point, just throw it away because everything changed out from under me overnight. Uh, you want to take advantage of all the neat new stuff, but you don't want to feel like you have to throw away all that you've learned and the lessons and the, the, the battles you've won to get there. And that's what we hope to accomplish by providing kind of the best of both worlds uh, in parallel packaging. So, Cool. Um, so, uh, well, a couple of questions about Pivotal. Before we kind of wrap up, um, uh, you know, where's Pivotal located? Uh, are you guys hiring? And uh, uh, whether you're hiring or not, what's the best thing about working at Pivotal? If you're, if you're not hiring, you can just make everyone really jealous. Um, if you are hiring, it could be a, a selling point. <laughs> uh, we are hiring, and I know we're hiring specifically for uh, the spring team um, that I know of. So, so we are hiring. Um, Pivotal came from different projects that were from that were had been acquired by uh, EMC and VMware, and so they spun those software projects out into Pivotal. So Pivotal itself is only three or four years old, but the the projects that are in them are are older than that. Um, I believe headquarters in in Silicon Valley, uh, with offices all over the world. Really, one of the parts of Pivotal is a consulting arm. They don't, they have a different style of, of teaching, and I saw this at Ford, rather than just having a class, you know, a week boot camp where they come in and show you how to, their way of doing things, the way they like to do things is pair with the company and show them, build something real with them and show them their processes and things, how they do that. So that's one of the things that that Pivotal does as well. Cool. Sounds good. Um, great. Thank you so much for your time. This is super interesting. I've definitely used uh, a lot of the Spring framework in the past, so so thank you for building it as well. <laughs> I've definitely, uh, it's made a lot of projects I've built easier. Um, Patrick, do you have any, any uh, anything burning? I feel like no, I... No, uh, I mean, I, I think that was awesome. You, you did a great job. Thank you, everyone, for being on. Well, thanks for having us, and uh, thanks to the uh, the Spring community for uh, being an awesome community and and uh, uh, working with us. And uh, thanks for the pull requests. <laughs> All right, we'll keep them coming. Great. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work. But you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.